All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9 again, the Gospel of Mark and chapter 9. Glad to see all of you here this morning. We're going to be looking at the same passage in Mark 9 that we began to study on last week. There was not enough time in one sermon to examine all there is in those first 13 verses of Mark 9. So we want to finish it up this Sunday. Warm up your fingers because there are several passages we will be reading in order to explain what is going on in these few verses. If I were to say to you the word eschatology, many of you, perhaps most of you, would know what I'm talking about. If you don't, no worries. I'm going to explain it to you. It is a Greek word. It's a compound word that means the last things or the body of truth about the last times, about the end times. It's a combination of two words, eschatos, which means the end or the last, and logos, which means the word or the expression or the verbal information about, the the whole teaching about. The Apostle John uses the word logos as a name for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the word Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John saying Jesus was the entire expression of who God the Father is. That's why Jesus himself said to the Apostle Philip in John 14, If you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. I am the expression of who God is, Jesus says. I am the word on God, so to speak. The whole teaching about God. The body of truth about what God is like. And John went on to say in the passage we read last Sunday there in John 1, The word or the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. A reference, of course, to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his leaving heaven and coming to earth and taking on all the limitations of a human body. So eschatology, the word, the whole teaching about the end, the last things, and and we use that ology ending on a whole bunch of our words in English that you're quite familiar with, I'm sure, biology. Bios is the Greek word for life, the word on life. Theology, theos, is the word for God. So it's a study of God. Say somebody's going to college and they're going to study anthropology. Anthropos is the word for man. It's anthropos and logos put together, the word or the study, the body of truth about man. If you get into theological terms, Bible doctrines, you've got Christology, the study of Christ. Pneumatology, or the, the, the study of, of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma meaning the word for spirit. Angelology, obviously the, the, the word on angels. Hamartiology, which is the, uh, hamartia is the word for sin. Ecclesiology, the study of the church, from ecclesia of the church. And of course, our term eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, the, the teaching about the end times which has become very popular these days for obvious reasons, because we believe we are in the end times. But you know, studying eschatology did not just become popular in the last 50 years. It has become immensely popular in the last 50 years, but it goes way, 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 way back.
fact, every follower of the true and living God has had some information about the last days since way, way back. The little tiny book of Jude records that Enoch, the seventh generation after Adam, the Enoch, the great grandfather of Noah, preached that the Lord would come to earth one day with tens of thousands of his saints to execute judgment on the ungodly. That was several hundred years before the flood. That wonderful servant of the Lord, Job, who suffered so greatly from the afflicting hand of Satan. Job wrote in Job chapter 19, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day he will stand on the earth. And even though I will die and my body will decay and go back to the dust, one day, Job says, in my flesh I will see God, and there will be a judgment and I will be vindicated. There's all kinds of wonderful eschatology in Job's beautiful statement. Job's redeemer's coming to earth in a physical body. Even though Job knows he's going to die, he will one day say, I'll get a new body in which, in which I, I, I will live in that body in the presence of God. There is a judgment day and God's going to vindicate me, Job says, uh, to, to, to reveal that he did not have secret sin he was harboring as his friends thought. And Job lived about 4,000 years ago. You know, in a wonderful little book written in the 1950s called The Prophets Still Speak, The Messiah in Both Testaments, the author and biblical researcher Fred Meldow counted 333 specific Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of them fulfilled in the New Testament record. And that does not count prophecies about the kingdom of God on earth, which is yet future. Bible researchers have estimated that 27% of the Bible is predictive, meaning it's, it's predicting something. And there are over 1,800, in fact, one person counted 1,817 specific prophecies in the Bible. About half of them have been already fulfilled. Some were short-term prophecies, some long-term prophecies. So, so our study of, of eschatology... The study of the last days or the end times is a very, very ancient study. And every single follower of the true and living God has had some information about the last days going all the way back to the pre-flood world. Now, Jesus' disciples, they had viewpoints and perspectives on eschatology. Some of it was correct. Some of it, in fact, a whole bunch of it was incomplete. They had missed some very essential pieces of the puzzle. And what we've been studying in recent weeks reveals that. We looked last week, we started out in chapter 9, we were there at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, as we saw, they were witnesses to the metamorphosis of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus in a brief display of His eternal glory, dazzling white, brighter than anything that this world could possibly produce. Moses and Elijah also showed up in glorified forms, and, and, and they were talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see from the Gospel of Luke that they were talking about the death of the Lord Jesus, which He was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we have seen repeatedly that, that the disciples had a terrible time accepting this. Jesus had begun to teach them about his upcoming death in chapter 8. Those of you who were with us a few weeks ago and the Apostle Peter absolutely flipped out at the, at, at the very thought of Jesus dying. In fact, look at verse 31 of chapter 8. 
It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter says, no, 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 Lord, no way. There's no way that you, that you can die. You're, you're the Messiah. You, 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 you can't die. You're going to be bringing in the kingdom. What we read last week here in chapter 9 is Jesus is coming down the mountain from the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody what you saw up here until after my resurrection, until after I rise from the dead. And they can't figure out what he's talking about. We'll read it here again in just a second. He tells them about it again in chapter 9. Look at verse 30. Chapter 9 and verse 30. They departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Later on in chapter 10, flip over to chapter 10, he tells them this again in in verse 32 of, of, of chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as he followed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he, why? Because they're headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus says that's where they're going to kill him. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him. And spit on him and kill him and the third day he will rise again and you would think after the teaching in chapter 8 after the teaching in chapter 9 after the teaching in chapter 10 you would think they have now heard this at least the three times that Mark records maybe other times and you would think they would have responded finally and said wait 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 now Lord we're, we're kind of lost. We don't really get this. Can you explain this to us? But instead, they just go right on in their view of eschatology that they've had before. The Messiah's come. He's going to set up the kingdom. And right after the teaching in chapter 10, we'll get to it in many weeks down the road, right after Jesus says, we're headed up to Jerusalem, and they're going to spit on me and scourge me, and they're going to kill me, right after that, James and John say, Lord, will you come into your kingdom? Will you grant us the honored seat to sit on the right hand and the left? I mean, the very next thing. You see, they, 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 had, they had kingdom glory on the brain. Glory was the dominating thought. And the transfiguration, this metamorphosis we talked about last week, only only added to that kingdom glory because they saw the Lord Jesus with the veil of his humanity pulled aside and they caught a glimpse of his Shekinah glory and they saw him and they saw with him Moses and Elijah. And this just seemed to feed right into their skewed sort of incomplete eschatology. They wanted glory. They wanted the kingdom. There was no thought of the Messiah dying and then rising that was totally foreign to everything that they had in their theology and their eschatology. And what they believed was what most of the first century Jews believed, what the scribes believed, what the leaders of Israel believed, what students of the scripture believed, and what they had taught the people, that the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, it's going to be this day of the Lord experience. That's an Old Testament term for judgment. 
and he's going to conquer his enemies, and he's going to bring salvation to Israel. Then he's going to elevate Israel to world supremacy, and he's going to rule the world from Jerusalem, having destroyed all the enemies of Israel and all the enemies of God. And he's going to establish his kingdom of, of righteousness and peace and knowledge, and it's going to fill the earth. Messiah will be worshipped, and he's going to pour out divine blessings across the planet, and he's going to crush any evil that springs up, and the nature of life on earth would be drastically altered, and everything would be glorious and peaceful and joyful, and they drew all of that out of the Old Testament prophets. That was their eschatology. That's what they expected, and you know what? They were not incorrect, but they were incomplete. Their timing was way off. And they missed one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. They got it about the kingdom. They understood that part. And they were right. It is coming. Just like, uh, just like I just said to you. That's what the scripture says is going to happen in the kingdom of God. And it is coming. But they thought it was coming then. And the thought of the Messiah dying. They're just thinking, what, 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 what? No, no way. They, they totally missed it. So when they hear Jesus say repeatedly that he's going to suffer and be arrested and be mistreated and be killed and then rise again, it was just not acceptable. It was a, it was a horrendous thought. It was a frightening thought. It did not fit their incomplete knowledge of the end times. They did seem to know, however, that things were not progressing according to their expectations. Things weren't going like they would have expected them to go at this point. Because as, as we know, and, and as they knew, uh, the, the leaders of Israel were making plans to kill the Lord Jesus. And the disciples knew that. The leaders of Israel had rejected Jesus and had rejected the disciples. And they knew that. Most of the people were curious, but they remained unconvinced and unconverted. And they realized that their group following Jesus was really very, very small. Jesus had preached to tens of thousands of people, and there were just a few hundred of them who were following him. So the disciples had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but there was a lot of confusion. And that led to a very, very interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter, James, and John as they came down from Mount Hermon, we believe most likely the Mount of Transfiguration. So let's read it again. I read it to you last week. Let's, we won't read all the Mount of Transfiguration things. You can listen to that sermon if you want to catch up with that. We're going to start today in Mark 9 and verse 9. And just look at these next, these next few verses. A fascinating exchange filled with all sorts of interesting background information. Mark 9 verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them, that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, <clears throat> questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. 
The first exchange is that Jesus tells them not to say anything. And we talked about this just a little bit last week, and, and we won't go into a lot of detail on it. But interestingly enough, as hard as it must have been, they obeyed. In fact, God, Dr. Luke, in his record of this event, says they kept silent and repeated to no one in those days any of the things they had seen. It must have been good that they could at least talk to each other about it, but they didn't talk to anyone else about it. But the scripture says they were rising, or they were questioning, rather, what the rising from the dead meant. Now, they didn't wonder what a resurrection was. They'd, they'd seen them. Jesus had performed them. Jesus had raised people from the dead. They'd stood there and watched it. They also understood that there would be a general resurrection of believers in the true and living God. They were students of the Old Testament. I just mentioned a few minutes ago Job's statement. He believed he would receive a new resurrection body. In Daniel chapter 12, they were, they were fully aware of the promises of God that there would be a resurrection of righteous people and a, res, and a, excuse me, a resurrection of unrighteous people at the end of time. There were several other passages that teach the same thing. So they're not having a discussion about what a resurrection is. They're having a discussion about the resurrection of Jesus because they don't have the death of the Messiah in their eschatology. And so when they say we keep this word to ourselves questioning what the rising from the dead meant regarding Jesus, when Jesus says don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead, See, Jesus says, don't, don't talk about this until he rises from the dead. So apparently this rising from the dead must be coming soon, or it must certainly be in our lifetime, because we're going to be able to talk about it eventually. So they're just confused. They're trying to fit the death and resurrection into what they think is the coming kingdom right around the corner. And remember in Acts chapter 1, even after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, where Jesus is about, was on earth for 40 days and then about to ascend up into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples look at Jesus and they say, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still wondering about it, even after the resurrection. But they ask another kind of probing question. Makes sense if you understand what's behind it. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why are they asking this? Well, look back at Malachi in chapter 4. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you just back up, we're in Mark, go to Matthew, turn a few more pages, you'll be in Malachi. The very last book in the Old Testament. Very last, last chapter in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi writes, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Sounds like judgment, indeed, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Judgment's coming, he says. He's going to destroy the wicked. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi was the last prophet to write 
about 400 years before Christ. Very well-known prophecy. And God says, I'm coming one day in judgment, the day of the Lord's coming, and I this terrible and dreadful day of the Lord when I'm going to judge the earth. But before that happens, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, hearts of the children to the fathers. And so as they're coming down the mountain, they're asking the Lord, they're kind of processing all this. He's talking about all this dying stuff. He thought, we thought the kingdom was coming. What's going on? And I mean, we thought there'd be more people following us than there are now. There's just a, there's just a, there's just a few hundred of us. And Jesus has preached a thousand upon thousands. What's going on? Hey, wait a minute. Isn't Elijah supposed to come before the Messiah gets here? If, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, and we know that he is, we, we, we've already said you know, the Apostle Peter said that great phrase we looked at a, a few weeks ago. Who do men say that I am? Oh, Lord, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. We know who you are. You are the Messiah. And so they're thinking, okay, if he's the Messiah, then where's Elijah? Malachi said Elijah the prophet was going to come before the day of the Lord. They're just trying to get their eschatology straightened out. And Jesus replies... Uh, Elijah will come, and he will prepare the people for the kingdom. But since you remember that prophecy, why don't you remember the prophecy that the Messiah must suffer and be treated with contempt? Notice what he says there. He said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's saying, yeah, I know you guys have that. That's the only time in the Old Testament that it talks about Elijah coming, Malachi 4. So there's only, there's only one verse that says Elijah was going to come and precede, and precede the, the Messiah. But Jesus says to him, and, and how is it written? Meaning it's in the Old Testament. That means, do you not remember that it's also written? That the Son of Man, it's a, that's a, a phrase for the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. That, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with, with contempt? Do, do, do you not remember that? You know, I'm, I'm, there, it's, it's all over the Old Testament. Let me just show you one passage of Scripture. It's very, very commonly known. Uh, Isaiah 53. Flip back there to Isaiah 53, if you would, just a second. Isaiah was a commonly read prophet, well-known, often read in the synagogue. So Jesus is simply asking them, since you remember that Elijah is coming, why don't you remember that I have to suffer and be treated with contempt? There's only one reference to Elijah preceding the Messiah. There are many references to the suffering of the Messiah. How about, how about those guys? Get your eschatology squared away. And look at Isaiah chapter 53. I think a number of years ago, I preached a couple of sermons on this passage. And if you look at the greater context, it's talking about the suffering servant of the Lord. It's a reference to the Messiah. Look at verse 3. We won't read the whole chapter. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, fellas. Don't you remember all the prophecies that say that I have to die, that I have to suffer, that I have to be rejected, that I have to be crushed and wounded and bruised and despised and rejected? Don't, don't you remember that? Yes, Elijah's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, but you forgot all the other prophecies about me. And then Jesus makes another very fascinating statement. He says, Elijah has come, and they killed him. He says, I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it's written of him. Say, so, so what's he talking about there? Well, we're really close. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke begins his gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ by explaining what was happening with Jesus' cousin, who came to be known John the Baptist. Verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, uh, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was. While he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense, and he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That sounds like a familiar phrase we just read in Malachi 4. He will also, he says, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus is saying, you know what? John the Baptist was the preview of the return of Elijah. Yeah, Elijah is coming. He's already kind of already been here through John the Baptist. He wasn't actually Elijah, but he was very much like him. And you see, even when the angel tells, tells Zacharias what John is going to be like, he uses phrases from Malachi 4, the description of what, of what Elijah was, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers, turning disobedient people back to Christ. He's going to go forth, he says, in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. He was the forerunner, John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah at his first coming. And Elijah, I believe, will actually come before the second coming of Christ. You say, really? Yeah. Look at the book of Revelation chapter 11. Told you to get your fingers warmed up.
Revelation chapter 11. We won't read the entire chapter, uh, but we'll read a portion of it here. Starting in verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. If you figure that out, 30-day months in the Jewish calendar, 1,260 days is three and a half years. Three years and six months. 42 months. If you just take 1,260 days and divide it by 30, you'll have 42 months. Three, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And look at what he says about them in verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Does that remind you of anyone? Some of you brilliant Bible students. That is exactly what Elijah did in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. He turned off the rain for three and a half years. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, three and a half years. They have power over waters to turn them to blood. That sounds familiar. That's Moses and, the, and his, his deliverance of the children of Israel. And to strike the earth with all plagues, just like Moses did in Egypt, as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pits, the Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Of course, that's Jerusalem. Then those, those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. They're going to party about it and send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them, and they saw a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Of course, this is right in the middle of the tribulation and all the judgments of God being poured out on the earth. But you know, although the scripture does not specifically say, a great many Bible students, including myself, believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Because of the similarities there in verse 6. Elijah, by the power of God, caused it not to rain for three and a half years during his ministry in 1 Kings. Moses, by the power of God, turned the Nile River to blood and brought many other plagues upon Egypt in the book of Exodus. And in my opinion, I'm just speculating here now, my father used to jokingly call it Bunyan theology. It's just that uh, the Bible doesn't specifically say it. I'm just speculating. The reason why Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking with Jesus about his upcoming death, I believe is because they were discussing when their time was to reappear back on the earth to complete their earthly ministries. Is it our time, Lord? Are we to be your witnesses now? 
We know the cross is coming up. Your death is coming up. Luke records they were talking about his upcoming death that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Is it, is, it, is it time now? Should we be prepared to come back and preach in the city of Jerusalem for three and a half years? Just my opinion. Can't be dogmatic about it, but I can't help but wonder if that's why Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. They're trying to figure out when their time was to come back. And a very interesting discussion between Jesus and the three apostles in his inner circle, is it not? Jesus is continually revealing to them his plan, his fulfillment of prophecy. He is filling in the blanks, the puzzle pieces that they did not comprehend. And one thing you and I absolutely, we know on this end of it, but there, there is no gospel without the cross and the resurrection. The message of Jesus is not a message about a healer. It is not a message about a good teacher. It is not a message about a man of wisdom and knowledge. It is not a message about a one who frees people from oppression. It is the message of the cross and the resurrection. Because without that, there is no salvation. There will be no kingdom. There is no hope. There is no heaven for anyone without the cross and the resurrection. And for we, of course, we, of course, who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, and when we understand the Scriptures, we, we love the cross. We, we celebrate the cross. Our joy is in the cross. It's like the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, famous passage. We've read it to you many times. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul writes. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Great passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. The message of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the disciples, of course, they eventually got it. <laughs> But all the time Jesus is trying to fill in the gaps of their eschatology. They're just saying, no, 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 we get, this can't happen. We can't, you can't die. You have to be the king. You have to fulfill all the promises. Jesus says, I'm going to. But not yet. Elijah is going to come. In fact, Elijah already kind of did come in John the Baptist. And they killed him. Elijah is going to come. And he will restore all things. But have you missed all the prophecies that talk about me dying for you? Oh, yeah, I guess we did, Lord. Yeah. So how is your eschatology these days? If the cross of Jesus Christ is not right smack in the middle of it, and at the beginning of it and at the end of it, then you need to get a few things squared away with the Lord. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved... It is the power of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we are so really overwhelmed sometimes as we look at all that is in the Scriptures. You have revealed just an enormous number of details to us, and we've missed a lot of them. We even miss some of the big things, some of the major things, some of the huge things, as the disciples did. And Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us. But as we look at the end, Lord, we believe we are in the end of the end times. We're in the last stages of the last days. We know that the, the tribulation is coming. The rapture is coming when we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet you in the air. And we will forever be with the Lord. We know that Enoch preached hundreds of years before the flood. You are coming back with ten thousands of your saints to, to, to bring judgment to the wicked. Lord, we see that happening in the book of Revelation. You told Enoch about it several hundred years before Noah. So we know, Lord, that all your promises, all your prophecies, it will all come true. Everything you've said is going to happen. And I pray, Lord, that we will bow before you in submission, that we will submit to, to your will and your plan for us individually. And Lord, may we remember the cross is the number one thing. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block and foolishness to so many. But yet that is what the Scripture teaches. So may we, Lord, keep the cross and what you accomplished on it as the central thought in our minds as we seek to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.